HVAC 360, episode number 13, ASHRAE 90.1, with Steve Scalco. Welcome back, everybody, to another edition of HVAC 360. I'm your host, Matt Nelson. Um, this week, we're going to be talking with uh, Steve Skelko, who is the chair of ASHRAE's 90.1 uh, committee uh, that covers that uh, energy code. This is a really great episode for somebody not familiar with 90.1. It kind of gives you a broad overview of, of uh, you know, where it came from, what it consists of, uh, some various things where you can learn a little bit more about it. Uh, so it's an excellent episode to uh, not only kind of catch up um, if you're not familiar with it, but also there's also some uh, things that you can probably pick up if you uh, are familiar with 90.1. and It's kind of part of your everyday life. So enough of this. Uh, let's just go to the interview. All right, we're talking with Steve Scalco who is the uh, chair of the 90, ASHRAE 90.1 committee. Uh, good morning, Steve. Uh, good morning, Matt. How are you this morning? I am doing well. And you? Uh, actually, so, so far I'm doing real well. We'll see how it goes. Excellent. So, Steve, can you tell me a little bit about your background? Uh, yes, I'm, um, I'm a civil engineer uh, by profession. I uh, graduated from uh, Georgia Institute of Technology, um, and from that I got involved in uh, building construction and building codes uh, early in my career. Uh, worked for the uh, city of Macon, Bibb County, Georgia, where I lived. Uh, I was director of the building inspection department for about eight years, uh, involved in applying codes to building construction projects that included energy codes. Uh, and from that, um, I came to work for the Portland Cement Association. Uh, it's a trade association representing cement producers, and I've I work as one of the uh, technical engineers on staff and have been with them for 20-plus years. So I guess, you know, for almost 30 years I've been involved in building codes and standards, and my responsibility with PCA with, is to, in fact, uh, be actively involved in the development of building codes and building standards on a national basis. Um, and, of course, as part of that, um, energy standards is one of the areas, and um, that's one of my responsibilities with uh, PCA is to to, to uh, 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 be involved in and monitor and take an active part in uh, development of energy standards. So how did you become involved with the, uh, the ASHRAE 90.1 committee? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I, I sometimes don't realize it, but I've been involved with the ASHRAE standard 90.1 uh, since the mid-1990s uh, uh, when I attended my first uh, ASHRAE meeting. Uh, I want to say prior to that, though, I had some involvement in that even as a code official, I served for a time on the what used to be called the Model Energy Code Committee on a national basis, and ASHRAE Standard 90.1 uh, uh, re was a reference document in that, and of course that's the, that's the front runner to now the International Energy Conservation Code. But uh, from that, uh, uh, PCA, we decided we need to be involved in ASHRAE Standard 90.1, so I started attending the meetings and showing an interest uh, as the standard was going through some of its uh, revisions for the uh, 1999 edition and uh, taking an active part in, in those areas, especially the building envelope, because those would, would have a, the biggest impact on material interests like the uh, concrete and masonry industry. Okay. 
Now, now, and how did you end up becoming chair? I mean, obviously, you know, participating is one thing, but actually kind of running the show is something completely different. So how, how did that come about? Well, and uh, I think it just somehow it evolved into a, I'm going to call it a natural process of selection. I guess I've been around long enough that folks finally said, well, maybe, maybe he'd be willing to be the one to, to uh, be the fish in the barrel. I, I'm not certain that that's how it happened, but I, uh, I, in my terms of my involvement, I think uh, uh, in the in early stages of the committee, I actually at one time chaired the envelope subcommittee, one of the one of the five subcommittees of the of the full committee, uh, and then of course my active participation. I think uh, over time, uh, as it became each each uh, three years, roughly every three years, three to four years, there's usually a change in the leadership at the top of the committee, and I think they look for folks who got experience and have had involvement uh, and see if they're interested in moving up to uh, leadership positions. And I will say that prior to my becoming chair in July of last year, uh, I had served uh, for three years as vice chair of the committee when we were going through the process for the 2010 edition. And, again, it's back to the thing I think folks uh, anticipate when you accept a position of leadership that eventually you're going to be asked, are you willing to take the top spot? And, of course, I entered into that willingly knowing that I would be asked to be chair. Um, and um, so I got appointed in July of uh, t- uh, 2010. So it, did, was there anything that you found that you, did, you didn't know before going into the position? Uh, I, I'll say a, a sort, of, sort of a yes. Uh, I, first of all, I want to say I thought I had a pretty good feel for everything and having been involved not only on the committee for so many years uh, as well uh, as well as having served as vice chair for three years, uh, our uh, previous chair, Mick Schwedler, uh, I think did a good job of making use of his vice chairs. He had two, I uh, being one of them, and uh, giving us some responsibility so that I did did have that sense. But at the same time, I will admit now now being chair, uh, there 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 occasionally there's a lot more some that comes at you uh, a combination of things between uh, working with the membership that's on the committee, maintaining balance. Making sure that the subcommittees, uh, you know, encouraging them to keep moving forward with um, reviewing things that perhaps would help advance the energy standard in terms of energy conservation. Uh, getting calls for interviews, for example, like this interview, which is which is a you know part of the responsibilities. But uh, I'm having to find myself getting asked a number of times to do presentations about ASHRAE standard 90.1, um, where it is, and of course where it's going. Um, uh, Department of Energy has asked me several times to make presentations. So so there's a lot more uh, probably being asked than I might have anticipated, but at the same time, I do find it uh, uh, worthwhile and exciting to be involved and in, in, uh, in help uh, lead the way. Now, do you have any uh, like additional stress knowing that ASHRAE 90.1 probably is one of the, or it has at least been uh, up until now, um, probably one of the, the, the biggest standards that you could work on across ASHRAE? Well, uh, I I don't know if I want to call it stress. I will say that there's no doubt in the back of my mind. I realized when we went to the uh, finished the 2010 edition and what and some of the accomplishments we had there. That when we set down our work plan for the 2013 edition, that we uh, set down some some goals of what we want to try to accomplish in terms of how we'll measure uh, advancing the standard. And and that's always in the back of my mind to you know want to hope or see that we reach those goals. Uh, so I guess that's always kind of in in the background, but at the same time, uh, the kind of process that we follow that a lot of times, uh, which I think is a very good uh, consensus building process, 
that uh, you can't necessarily uh, dictate or, or mandate that certain things happen. You have to let the process work its way out. So I, I'm not quite as stressed uh, in that regard where I realize I just have to manage the process and whatever works out will work out. Good. Now kind of get a, giving a little bit of background on, on what ASHRAE 90.1 um, is can you give a little history uh, behind uh, where it came from and, and you know where it uh, you know uh, how it developed? Yeah, uh, it's interesting, I, and I do a lot of times. Just so you'll know, a lot of times in presentations I'll do on uh, ASHRAE Standard 90.1, I use what I call a timeline uh, slide in a PowerPoint. I do because I think it's important for people to realize how long ASHRAE Standard 90.1 has been around. But the first edition of the standard was actually published in uh, 1975. Uh, it was it was brought about mostly because of what uh, those of us been around long enough to realize was the old oil embargo and when energy conservation started taking a for, forefront in uh, um, with regard to building design um, and and folks approached uh, ASHRAE as an, or, as an organization and they brought together one of the first committees and uh, made up of professionals and representatives of equipment manufacturers, et cetera, and, and put together what they thought were, I think at that time, were really best practices and what could be done to address energy conservation. And, of course, once that standard was set in place over time, it's gone through uh, a number of iterations of revisions. Uh, the time frame between editions uh, was somewhat lengthy for a while, but uh, uh, it's still you know, always followed through this process of trying to stay on the uh, cutting edge of what seems to be best and, and uh and appropriate in terms of energy conservation. I do do want to point out that um, from ASHRAE standard 90.1 1975 edition really was the front runner to what became the basis for the model energy code that is now what we call the International Energy Conservation Code. And ASHRAE standard 90.1 is still included in, in even the most recent documents, the energy code, uh, as an alternative path because it represents um, uh, from the standpoint of building design, hopefully some of the best and best and best and most cost-effective ways to do energy conservation. Um, so, so it has a, it has a very varied history. I, I will also point out in the most recent time, I, I say since since the 1999 edition and coming forward, the standard uh, through ASHRAE's process, we've refined it enough that we're in a mature period where every three years we try to produce a new standard. Uh, sometimes it may have some drastic changes, sometimes not, but it usually is always uh, going through a consensus to reach what seems to be the best and right things to do for uh, energy conservation in buildings. And so I, I like to think that the standard is, as you mentioned in your question to me, uh, it really is a, a cutting-edge standard, a leading standard uh, in terms of uh, talking about energy conservation, at least from a, especially a cost-effective point of view. Now, when when they were developing the standard, you said there was kind of, uh, you know, in the beginning there was kind of a, a, a time lag between when versions were issued. What I mean, was it, I think, was, was it every 10 years that they were doing at the, at the beginning, or how how did that, how has that changed uh, across the uh, uh, timeline? Yeah, and I, and I appreciate you, I, I appreciate you asking that. I, I think it's worth uh, emphasizing it. Uh, after the 1975 standard, the next real additions came out in 1980. Uh, the standard did some revisions, uh, mostly to the commercial building portion. And then the next actual edition of the standard uh, didn't come out again until 1989. So there was almost like a, a nine-year period. And it just in the consensus-making ma uh, process, it just was taking that long to make major revisions and to determine what changes ought to happen. After the 1989 edition uh, came out, 
the next edition was the 1999, so now we're seeing, again, almost a 10-year period, uh, again, just simply through through what was happening with the consensus process. And I think at that stage, it, it, beget, it became apparent, though, to really, if you want to stay uh, uh, on the front edge of what's taking place, you've got to uh, act and be able to pr- provide in a, a shorter time frame. And ASHRAE's le- uh, leadership, the board, uh, took a leadership position and said, let's go ahead and put the standard on what's called continuous maintenance and let us uh, go through a, instead an update every three years so that every three years, every three-year period, we consider any kind of changes uh, that are uh, appropriate and going following our process and then from that produce a new addition that incorporates simply whatever changes uh, were justified for the last three years. And in that way, every three years we're producing uh, a newer edition of the standard instead of feeling like we have to do a complete rewrite because complete rewrites obviously just were taking too long. So, so that has uh, caused us to get into a pattern that um, what I think is a healthy pattern of how we do things. We look at things on three-year cycles. What can we accomplish in that three years? What are the bigger items to try to address? Uh, see if we can incorporate them. Uh, and then, of course, publish a, a new edition, which the 2010 was the last. And under my uh, uh, tenure, uh, the 2013 edition will be the edition that, that we're focusing on. So so essentially you have a new group of uh, leadership, so to speak, for every kind of edition now. Um, in, in terms of the top leadership, I'll answer that question with a yes. I think they usually there, there's an expectation there will be a change of the chair. Uh, may or may not be a change of vice chairs. There, there was for my, my tenure we do have two new vice chairs. But uh, it's worth pointing out uh, one of my chairs um, was a, uh, previously the chair of our mechanical subcommittee, and, of course, he's moving up in the leadership ju- just like what occurred with me as a previous uh, committee member. Uh, I, and I think that helps for, with continuity for the, for the uh, committee as a whole where you use folks uh, when you have change of leadership. You generally are using folks who've been on the committee who are familiar with uh, the history to it because uh, that can also help you. And when you're looking for where you're headed, it pays to kind of know where you've been. Um, I will say as far as the whole committee is concerned, I think it's worth mentioning here that the whole committee doesn't go through a complete changeover of membership either. We do look at memberships on an annual basis. Uh, sometimes a few folks uh, are feeling like they need to move on to other things, and we look to for other uh, talents to bring on to the committee. Uh, and at the same time, uh, some folks have been on for a while. That's probably within ASHRAE's procedures. They and, uh, expect that some folks will will roll off so we can bring uh, new people on. But we're always trying to maintain some uh, group of folks on the committee that have been around for a while because I think that you don't, you don't want to have a brain drain all at once. And that, so in that regard, I think it helps with the uh, how the committee uh, uh, structure works. So what would now? It's not. It's not just ASHRAE. This energy standard. It's not just ASHRAE as far as uh, you know groups go. Who all is uh, involved in, in developing and uh, um, you know participating in the uh, the committee? Yeah. Well. Let, well. Let me. Uh, that's. Uh, let me mention answer that question. Let me first of all mention that one thing that's real important is that the ASHRAE standard ninety point one is a cooperative effort, not only between ASHRAE but also between the uh, International Engineering, excuse me, the Illuminating Engineering Society uh, also serves as a co-sponsor of the standard so that, so that the input is not, is not just uh, within ASHRAE. Uh, it is a jointly uh, sponsored and developed standard. Uh, ASHRAE, though, in their memorandum of understanding, takes the lead on uh, managing that pro- the process. And then, of course, 
that comes to the next part to help answer the question you've asked. Uh, in that process, there the we follow the uh, uh, ANSI uh, American National Standards Institute pr- uh, procedures, which is to do, to do a consensus-based, a consensus-developed uh, standard. And by consensus, we try to have a fair balance of uh, interested parties and stakeholders on the committee uh, representing a very steady, broad, and diverse uh, group of people. So that, for example, we have uh, individuals that would re- represent the uh, HVAC equipment manufacturers. We have folks representing utility industry. We have people from the design profession, uh, 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 design community. It could be architects. We, but not could be. We do have some architects. We have mechanical engineers. We have electrical engineers. Uh, we have folks who are actively involved in uh, energy modeling. Uh, we we have members on the committee who represent uh, I call it consumer or user interest. Uh, we have folks who represent the home building industry. We have uh, I- uh, individuals who represent uh, building owners, um, and then we even get into some of the material interests. We have folks representing the insulation industry, or um, I've already mentioned equipment manufacturers, representatives from the steel industry, uh, the concrete and masonry industry, uh, the even the wood industry uh, uh, participates. So. So we have a fairly broad uh, group, and and from a uh, from that standpoint, uh, it's not just ASHRAE and IES uh, uh, developing the standard, though they have the uh, responsibility for it. The committee itself represents a lot of broad-based uh, interest, uh, also, uh, you know, again, by interested parties and also what we call uh, um, materially affected parties who uh, have an interest in what the standard does. So, from from version to version of the standard, what what typically is what do, what are the what are the most significant changes that that you would see? Um, I mean, is the, that... um, well, let's, let let me put that into a two part way to answer the question. Let's just talk for a second. Let me mention just briefly some quick examples of where when we were doing the uh, uh, twenty ten edition of the standard when we were looking at things. I, I want to start by ma- making the comment that a lot of times when the committee looks at proposed changes. In what we use, what we have a work plan on what, on what we try to help guide our committee in, in our work plan, we try to consider things that we are, feel like are technically justified. That's one, that's one important thing. Uh, two, that we try to have the provisions in as simple a manner as possible uh, so that they're used by the user as well as by the enforcing agencies uh, are enhanced. And then uh, we try to have it with some flexibility so that, in fact, uh, you know, it's not like it's only this way that, to do things that have some uh, options. Uh, once we do that, then the next thing, uh, going through that process, some of the changes for the 2010 edition included uh, in each of our, I call it our basic uh, committee categories, the envelope of the building. We had, we made modifications to the metal buildings uh, provisions for metal building uh, envelope. We made requirements for continuous air barriers. We enhanced things for the use of uh, cool roofs and vegetative roofs. We made modifications to fenestration orientation of the building. In lighting, we started to enhance the use of day lighting as an option to regular, you know, regular uh, physical lighting in the building, making use of skylights. We included uh, more revisions for lighting controls, uh, lighting power density requirements. Uh, we started to look at how we can control, uh, make requirements that help um, use uh, receptacle controls. Uh, to try to minimize uh, uh, energy use, we are looking at dynamic glazing, which you might think is a 
building envelope requirement, which it partly is, but also looking at dynamic glazing as a as a way to use uh, in incorporate into uh, lighting controls. We did a lot of changes uh, in the 2010 edition, some revisions to uh, equipment efficiencies for chillers and uh, water-to-water heat pumps. Um, so there's, there's those kind of things that got processed. Uh, the mechanical subcommittee started looking at uh, ways to try to dr- further address uh, laboratory exhaust systems and revisions to uh, air-to-air energy recovery. Um, and one of the big changes for the 2010, and I'm mentioning it because this will relate to where we're headed with the 2013, we had a major change to our title, purpose, and scope, uh, where the, up to the up to until the 2010 edition, title, purpose, and scope sometimes limited us where it didn't allow us to go try to address some uh, processes and things that might be viewed as a commercial process or an industrial process uh, that use energy uh, and that maybe could be, could be made to improve uh, energy uh, use in the building. But the standard basically said, well, that's exempt. And so the title, purpose, and scope has been broadened to allow us to perhaps try to address some commercial and industrial processes. Now, I, having said that, let me comment right off the bat that we're not about to go and, and start addressing all the commercial and uh, industrial processes that are out there. But it does open the door for us to start addressing some things. And one of the most recent that we did do with the 2010 was to try to address data centers, which are uh, high-energy uh, use uh, facilities, and allow us to use to, to address uh, uh, heating and cooling requirements and economizers for da- uh, data centers as a means to reduce uh, energy consumption. Um, for the th- 2013 edition, we're already starting to look at things like uh, commercial refrigeration equipment, like you would see in uh, retail stores, where in the past uh, that commercial refrigeration equipment might have been viewed as a commercial process, and because it was, it was exempt from the standard. Uh, so so those, those are the kinds of things that we see ourselves addressing uh, down the road. In the 2013 edition, we're going to have in further improvements to the building envelope provisions. We're uh, taking that step of, since we're using dynamic glazing in the buildings, is to start requiring labeling um, requirements for dynamic glazing that gets placed on the building, which hopefully will help the code enforcement community see what's being put in. We're starting to look at, uh, I already mentioned commercial refrigeration equipment. We're going to start looking at uh, damper leakages uh, and whether or not there's ways to try to uh, reduce uh, damper leakage or or specify minimum requirements for dampers uh, from a leakage point of view. Uh, We're starting to look at the uh, fan efficiencies and the motors uh, running fans uh, as a part of uh, what the standard may try to address, where in the past we have not um, looked at those areas. And so it's a combination of things that we've done and, then, and things where we're headed that I think the standard uh, continues to try to stay in the forefront of uh, of uh, specifying uh, minimum requirements for uh, building energy design. Now, is a certain percentage uh, for every version that, that you're, you're looking to, to, to eke out with these measures? Uh, it, uh let me answer the question that uh, in, in many previous editions, that, that answer would have been no. Uh, however, for the 2010 edition, there was a sort of a challenge, or challenge put forth to try to use as a, as a guide for us to have some percentage of improvement. Uh, what's always been the debatable thing as well, percentage of what, how do you measure it? We, uh, we chose as the committee to use energy cost savings as our measure, and we did accept the challenge to try to, to have our standard 
show a, a percentage uh, energy cost savings of 30% over the 2004 edition of the standard. Now, I want to mention there is a 2007 edition of the standard, but we chose 2004 um, as a baseline to, to give us something to work from because that way we have a sense of more buildings being had been built under the, that standard edition than the 2007 uh, and it gave us some baseline to measure from. And we were fortunate through many of the improvements we made. Uh, we utilized uh, the Pacific Northwest Labs, uh, did a lot of analysis, uh, whole building analysis, in looking at a, a combination of 17 prototype buildings to help us measure uh, what kind of savings we got with changes we made in the 2010 versus the 2004 edition. And, of course, through that, we, we did see where we, uh, if we ignore unregulated loads, which are things we can't have any control over, uh, where we're just addressing the things we do we do uh, control in the standard, uh, we did get a, a pretty much a 30% energy savings over the 2004 edition. Okay, but that's, now, having, right, but that's having not done always that, the case. I'm sorry, what? That, but that's not going to always be the case. That's... Well, it's, it's not, and, it, and you know, it's like anything. Sometimes there's going to be some law of diminishing return. But so let me just use for the 2013 edition. Um, we we didn't sit there and say to ourselves, okay, well, we think we ought to go 30 percent above the 2010 edition. I think that might have been unrealistic. Uh, but what what we are doing is we've set as a as a general goal in our work plan that we want to try to shoot for. A, a, we'll call it a reach goal of about a 50 percent improvement from the 20. 2004 edition. Now, let me mention to you that we we got to 30 percent from 2004 to 2010. So we're just saying, well, by the 2013, can we reach now up to a, maybe a 50 percent improvement? And whether we get there or not, we don't know. We're still in the midst of that. We're presently processing addenda um, and still having to make some measurement through the uh, through the project progress indicators uh, process of whole building analysis I mentioned. Uh, but at least it gives us something to shoot for, and so we are, we are, we did set that at least as our work plan goal of trying to say 50%. Uh, I think what we what we found when we were doing the 2010, and I think it's worth mentioning in relation to what we're doing for the 2013, is the fact that by at least setting a goal, it gives us gives us a target target to shoot for, um, and so at least it gives us something to, to guide us. Uh, one of the things that's important in this is to to realize that we can set those goals all we want, but when it comes to achieving them, part of it is also dependent on what we can, what changes we can actually process through the consensus standards making process we follow. Because you know some things may all of a sudden somebody propose something that has a significant energy savings, but when you start processing it and receiving input from the outside community and also keeping in mind the the uh, uh, Cost effectiveness that we use as part of our evaluation. Some things may not be cost effective and 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 or uh, are not practical or for some reasons are not uh, can't reach consensus. Then we, we we don't incorporate them when we can't incorporate them in the standard. So uh, we sometimes uh, in reaching that goal, there are some outside factors that are beyond our control, um, and that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing as part of our process uh, that may may keep us from reaching the 50 percent, but at least we're trying to shoot for it. So now you've mentioned this work plan. You mentioned addendas. Can you kind of give me a, a, a general outline of, of what what is the process of of updating ninety point one? 
Yeah, so, so what usually happens, it, it, it can happen from a number of ways. Uh, let me start by m- mentioning, and I said it in the early part of this interview, we, we're under what we call a continuous maintenance process. And what that means is every year anybody who wants to propose uh, some type of revision or some type of suggestion for how the standard ought to be modified can submit it formally through uh, ASHRAE's uh, through, through ASHRAE headquarters as a form to fill out, and when they propose that, that proposal gets sent to our committee, uh, and when it's given to us, then it is assigned, depending on the technical nature of the proposal, it's assigned to one of our uh, subcommittees. We have a subcommittee for building envelope, one for mechanical systems, we have one for electrical, and then we have one for what we call energy cost budget, which is basically uh, dealing with issues of primarily energy modeling. Uh, once that continuous maintenance proposal comes in, it's gone through an evaluation process. We invite the person who submitted it, as well as any other interested parties, to come to meetings to discuss it. And, of course, through that, uh, it, it, it'll, it in its own right, through the discussion, the, these are open meetings, through the discussion, if it has merit to it, then the committee will package it in such a way, and if the committee as a whole approves it, we send it out for a public review. When that proposal goes out for public review, it obviously opens it up to more individuals to offer comments. Uh, some are for, uh, pro comments, some are uh, comments and perhaps suggesting changes. Some comments are actually against it. And uh, through that process, we uh, have those commenters either by telephone calls or if they can come to the meetings, we come and have them discuss in the meetings and subcommittee meetings uh, the merits of their comments so that we can try to sort out what seems to be the best and right thing to do and whether we can reach consensus. Um, Once we've completed that process, if the committee feels like it has reached its consensus, it will then uh, send whatever the final package is, send it up up through the ASHRAE process for uh, uh, publication. Now, let me back up and comment that if if a proposal doesn't really seem to have merit or we can't reach consensus, then it never goes any farther. It just stays where it is, or, or we actually will say we we recommend that this item not be uh, pursued any further. Um, so so it, it just depends on what happens while it's being debated in those open uh, public meetings. I also want to comment that it's not just continuous maintenance proposals, but if the committee in this process decides there's areas it thinks it can make improvements. It can generate its own, uh, what, what you could call an internal continuous maintenance proposal. But either way, it still has to go through this public review, public comments, address the public comments, engage stakeholders uh, before any final decisions made by the committee. My last comment in relation to that is um, once we send it up to the ASHRAE leadership and if it goes through the ASHRAE board, uh, when the board recommends publication, there is still one more step, and that is if anybody along that way feels like we've not properly followed the procedures or something about it is flawed, they have the right to appeal, and the ASHRAE Board of Directors will appoint a special appeals panel who will then listen to the appellant that's uh, concerned about the process we followed or what, or what we use as our basis for our decisions. And, of course, we respond on behalf of the project committee uh, what what our actions were, and then the that appeals panel uh, will either decide, well, we think the project committee did just what it was supposed to, and let and recommends it move forward, or if they don't agree, they think no, you need to kick this kick this around a little bit more. They'll send it back to us for us to re-review. In that process, then every three years we will process a number of the 
continuous maintenance proposals or internally developed proposals, and each time when we do, if they if they complete that process, they get published as what they call addenda, which is a change to the previous full published edition. And of course, when we complete a year a three year period, 2013, all of the addenda, all of the addenda get um, incorporated into the uh, into the next edition of the standard. Excellent. So it's, it seems to me that there's a, a pretty robust system in place to, to make sure that, you know, off-the-wall comments are not, not necessarily uh, given too much validity. Um, and also if there's some sort of, uh, like, equipment manufacturer that's trying to, to, to get in there, um, that there's a, a, an avenue to, to make sure that, you know, that doesn't happen. So Yeah. I think that's and I think that's a fair statement and very important one, Matt, that you've made there. Is that uh, you know off the wall things can you know that nothing says somebody can't propose something. Uh, it's not ours to decide they can't. You know, think well, you know, that doesn't have any chance. We'll we'll consider, but clearly, if it's off the wall, it, real quickly it'll find out find itself real. You know, right at the beginning, it doesn't have much support. Same is true if there's some some uh, entity that has an interest. Could be an equipment manufacturer, somebody trying to promote just their item. Uh, real quickly, because of the way the consensus process works, uh, we, we're not a, we're not in the we're not in the uh, uh, business as, as far as the project committee of promoting any one product or any one individual. We start a, instead look at things as the whole uh, the whole as an industry. And uh, uh, clearly, if somebody's uh, looking at a self-serving single interest, it doesn't it doesn't get any traction. Excellent. So now what, uh, I guess for some of the uh, U.S. listeners, when we talk about every every state has a version of, um, you know, an energy code or an energy requirement that they have out there, um, is it is it consistent across the states or is it varied or can you talk to that a little bit? Well, I think it, it actually it actually varies and part of that is, uh, you know, we, we are, for the most part in this country, um, we are big believers in state rights, which which makes sense, and I you know that uh, has always made sense to me. So you have states, uh, various states, is doing doing what they do from an energy conservation standpoint varies from state to state. Now, now generally speaking, from the Energy Policy Act back in the early 1990s, I think it was 1992, uh, it was always established that uh, for commercial buildings that ASHRAE Standard 90.1 becomes the base document, and uh, I think the most recent up until real recently, the uh, 2004 edition was the standard uh, that the Energy Policy Act said that states should use to gauge what they use in their states. And of course, in their states, they we hopefully that they would use the ASHRAE standard. But if they want to use some other form, they can as long as it's comparable to the ASHRAE standard. Uh, recently, now because of that, then some states might be using the 2004. Some states may choose to go to a later edition of the ASHRAE standard, which is within their prerogative. And and of course, I know some states. I'll use Georgia for example, where we actually uh, use the 2007 edition. Uh, and in fact, I know other states and Georgia included are looking to move down the road to using the 2010. Um, I think also what plays a part in is that is the U.S. Department of Energy is supposed to make their determinations. Uh, periodically and on the where the each of the standards uh, sits in regard to the Energy Policy Act, and in recent times I think DOE has at least uh, started issuing, issuing their preliminary determination for ASHRAE Standard 2007, and we hope they'll do 2010 in the not too distant future, and people will start using it. Um, but it does vary from state to state simply, you know, because of the because of the ability of the states to do to do what they uh, feel like is best for their jurisdictions. Uh, many states I know, though, generally try to stay up with some of the more current uh, additions. 
Now, how is how is the ninety point one used internationally? I mean, is is it being adopted? Is it being looked at? How do you have any idea, any feeling for that? I have a little bit of a sense. I don't uh, I don't travel internationally per se and uh, don't track things, but um, I know that uh, ASHRAE standard ninety point one uh, has been adopted uh, at least by some. Uh, individual jurisdictions, for example, in Canada, I think uh, I understand Vancouver, uh, city of Vancouver has adopted and it's probably and there's several others so but they they in fact uh, uh, have adopted the standard uh, specifically for that jurisdiction. I'm not familiar with any specific country internationally that has adopted the standard on a national basis like we like we generally have um, di- not directed but you know try to encourage to happen in the United States where standard 90.1 is pretty well used as the base document um, based on the Energy Policy Act. But I think in, in other areas, I know in the Middle East, uh, uh, I know some designers that are, that have come to the ASHRAE meetings will use ASHRAE standard 90.1 when they're doing building designs in other countries, and the Middle East is one that comes to my mind, uh, that they will use that standard and that perhaps some of the Middle East countries encourage it to be used as a basis, even though it's not necessarily legally adopted you know it's not like it says you must follow that but there but it is encouraged to be used so i think uh 90.1 does have a, a, a in my opinion has international standing uh that it does serve as a as a, a base document that many places can use or would use um but it's not has not necessarily been adopted formally as far as any other countries are concerned yeah now, from a, from a code official, obviously, you know you have you know when your 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 standard is uh, enforced, you have code officials that are going to be responsible in some part um, to kind of you know check. You know, you have your engineers that are they're going to lay it out, but to really make sure that it's happening, um, that le- rests on the uh, the building department, and the code officials. How how do you think that uh, is going with with the code officials? Well, uh, I, let me just offer this is strictly my opinion uh, mm-hmm. uh, as, a, as a former code official too, for that matter. Uh, most code departments I know they they uh, they have the energy in those locations where they do active code enforcement. They have the energy standard uh, as a part of what's expected to be followed. Uh, some jurisdictions, because of limited resources and manpower, uh, a lot of times will perhaps depend on third party. Uh, inspection and third-party certifications for compliance uh, simply because they don't have the manpower or the resources. A few jurisdictions, though, are pretty active, and uh, I think in those jurisdictions, that, in terms of uh, having personnel on board, in those that are pretty active, uh, they generally you know, try to stay uh, current with uh, whatever energy standard they've got, but uh, through training and uh, taking advantage of courses and Therefore, you know, try to stay current with what the standard requires. Uh, we have, as I mentioned in the, in the early part of this interview, we do try to make the standard be such that it's readily usable and available and, and enforceable by the code officials, keep it in terms that can be easily applied. Um, so we try to have that at, at the forefront. Uh, but even then, you know, sometimes for some really large commercial projects, uh, they get so complex that, it, that probably many departments uh, usually will go that uh, third-party route uh, simply for as for purposes of uh, having not being able to afford to have highly technical staff on their on their uh, payroll that will depend on the third parties for that uh, for that uh, determination. Is there anything special the engineering community could do uh, to help this out or? 
Well, you know, it, uh, I, I think the answer to that is yes. I think especially for the engineering community that maybe uh, if they're hopefully active in the in the ASHRAE and maybe even the chapter activities might be the fact that occasionally they might want to uh, on a, either on a local chapter or even on a statewide basis maybe try to encourage and hold some training classes or training sessions sponsor some that not only the engineering profession can attend but also uh, invite and you know invite their local code officials uh, maybe make some arrangements for them to be able to come to some of the sessions and uh, if nothing else uh, a lot of code officials not unlike the engineering profession, want to look for having professional development uh, hours as part of their continued education uh, and have them come to these sessions that, uh, at least nothing else, at least get them exposed to some of what the standard requires. Uh, and I think, you know, at least through a combined effort, you, you'll see more uh, enforcement take place or at least more compliance take place than you would if you just uh, totally leave them out of the loop. So now talking about ninety point one, just kind of as a whole, can you kind of describe what 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 really is in the standard? I mean, how is it how is it broken up, just kind of in a in a broad brush kind of way? Well, the way the way the standards uh, structured, of course, it has a, a variety of chapters. I think it's about twelve chapters. Uh, several of the chapters are really devoted strictly to I'm going to call it the component part of the building. For example. Uh, chapter 5 is strictly building envelope requirements, whether it be the thermal envelope for the opaque wall or the fenestration requirements. Uh, when you go to uh, Chapter 6, you get into the uh, mechanical uh, portion of the standard and things that relate specifically to HVAC equipment um, and you know the, the various things that come into play. Uh, chapter 7 is service water heating. Uh, chapter uh, 8 is uh, power, power chapter, and 9 is lighting. Um, chapter 10 is electric motors. Chapter 11 is ECB, which is energy cost budget, which is like where you get into modeling. Uh, so when you look at the, the when you look at the standard, uh, as I go back to when I mentioned, like Chapter 5, if you're just interested in building envelope requirements, that's where you would go find the provisions. If you're looking at strictly things involving HVAC, you go to Chapter 6. If you're looking at lighting, you would go to Chapter 9. Uh, and, and we have subcommittees uh, that handle each of those chapters, and they're responsible for the parts and portions that just deal with that. I will say that um, down the road, I think one of the other things about the way where we're headed is we're finding more and more that we can no longer think in just component basis, you know, if you want to make improvements in the in the uh, energy standard and, and, and in energy conservation of the building, let's just, you know, tighten down this one part. Uh, I think we're finding that more and more is, is more that we need to look at the whole the building as a whole, and I think not only right now, but in the future especially, I think we're going to be looking at more emphasis on whole building design, especially for your larger commercial buildings, because I think that approach is where uh, folks looking at all the parts put together uh, can really see where their energy efficiency can be gained instead of just looking at the parts and portions. Now, when you take a look at um, the 2007 version uh, versus the 2010, I know you kind of alluded to a little bit, but where where are the significant changes um, between those two versions that people people would uh, recognize? Well, I think uh, let me let me mention. Uh, yeah, I guess uh, let me just go back over. First of all, let me mention this so you'll know. From the 2007 to the 2010 edition, the ASHRAE Standard Committee process approximately 109 addenda, which are 109 individual changes. Now, I want to say of those 109, not all of them resulted in significant changes or uh, even necessarily significant energy 
cost savings. Uh, some of them were simply trying to clarify, you know, somebody maybe was having difficulties in, in what and how something applied. But when it comes to the bigger items, uh, some of the areas that, that were uh, the most biggest changes were uh, definitely changes to the building envelope with regard to metal buildings, uh, where the previous 2007 edition, uh, the stringency probably was not quite where it needed to be, uh, so that, that that has been increased. We didn't have requirements for continuous air barriers in the 2007 edition, but we now do have requirements that the building envelope, the designer, look at it with, with the standpoint of trying to minimize uh, air infiltration, so there's provisions for continuous air barriers. The 2007 edition didn't uh, give a lot of guidance on the orientation of the building as far as fenestration, so you reduce uh, heat gain from the sun, where now the 2010 edition does. Um, there's a lot more uh, requirements in there for uh, use of daylighting and uh, use of uh, lighting controls in the 2010 edition that were not in the 2007 uh, edition. Uh, there's uh, requ uh, requirements uh, for a uh, portion of the receptacle loads to have controlled uh, controls on the receptacle loads that would, in fact, turn the receptacles off uh, during uh, non-operating uh, hours uh, so as to make sure that folks aren't just... Um, unnecessarily leaving equipment plugged in that's using energy but not being used uh, during uh, off hours. Um, there's going to be some changes with regard to mechanical uh, equipment efficiencies, uh, chiller efficiencies uh, that are not that are uh, revised from what the 2007 edition uh, of the standard had. Uh, the mechanical subcommittee tried to look more at the laboratory exhaust and exhaust systems uh, and see if there wasn't and not see if there was did in fact make some revisions to uh, how those things are handled, and of course, the thing I mentioned, for at least in a broad sense, is the title, purpose, and scope change was a big change uh, because the 2007 had exceptions for commercial industrial processes, where the 2010 edition doesn't totally eliminate them, but it definitely uh, allows for a little bit broader use of the standard if there are provisions in there. And of course, I mentioned earlier about economizers and data centers was one of the first things that we. Uh, did undertake uh, as a part of uh, our expanded title, purpose, and scope. So now if, if somebody wanted to learn more about uh, uh, ASHRAE 90.1, what are, what are some of the sources that are available from uh, ASHRAE in regards to this? Um, a couple things. Of course, one of them, and, one, and I'll come back to it, or I'm sure we're going to come back to it, is I want to talk about the user's manual. We do have a user's manual that can be used in conjunction with uh, the standard uh, 90.1, every one of the previous editions, as well as the 2010, uh, a lot of times that contains some very useful information. Uh, there are seminars that are held uh, quite often uh, at the ASHRAE uh, uh, winter and summer meetings uh, where some of the latest things on the standard are, are being presented on what's, what's in the standard. I know the last few, uh, there's been uh, presentations done by members of, of my project committee uh, to make folks aware of it. Uh, the, a lot of the local chapters are encouraged and the, and the state chapters are encouraged to uh, seek out through ASHRAE uh, uh, speakers that will come and make presentations uh, on what some of the changes are. And, of course, those are a lot of times are readily available uh, through the ASHRAE headquarters. They'll uh, many times uh, have folks available that can come and put on presentations. Um, and I think ASHRAE, uh, I think sometimes we'll sponsor seminars and, and various training uh, sessions uh, that people can attend to, I, I would say they would probably need to v visit the ASHRAE website and find out more information uh, that might be available.
Okay. You mentioned the user's guide. Now, how is that? Uh, um, can you describe? How would you describe that to somebody? And and how is that created? Who, who's responsible for that? Yeah, and well, and and, for, and so for starters, the first thing I'll tell you is, uh, in the strictest sense, uh, the ASHRAE standard ninety point one committee is actually responsible for the user's manual. Now, that's not to say that we write it. We we don't. Um, but when it comes to the development of the standard, we have a responsibility to be involved in, excuse me, not the standard of the user's manual, we have a responsibility to be involved in it. What, what really happens is that uh, ASHRAE as an organization uh, will issue a contract to some entity to uh, provide the contractual services and develop the user's manual. And it'll be usually use a combination of folks who are familiar with all the various parts of the standards, maybe architects and engineers uh, that handle building envelope and mechanicals and lighting systems uh, and do energy modeling. And those folks will take and use take the standard itself and break it down into parts, typically done by chapter, and will then write commentary uh, to go along with. Uh, key parts of the standard to explain how it's to be applied. And m uh, many of these folks, not all of them, but many of these folks uh, have experience, either their past experience being on the Standard 90.1 committee or have been attending the meetings, and even a few of the writers can, in fact, be uh, or are members of the committee. When they write that commentary uh, and put it together in draft within the Standard 90.1 committee itself, my, uh, my committee, we we would assign a uh, oversight group made up of several members of each of our parts of the of the uh, committee as a whole, uh, who will then be responsible for looking over that commentary, and and what we try to make sure is that the commentary reflects a written word that explains properly what the standard itself intended. The user's manual is not the standard. The standard stands on its own, but the user's manual is intended to be an explanation. And from that, if there's some material if uh, during that process when we're looking at as it's being developed, if we feel like some material incorrectly states something, then we will say, no, that is not correct. It needs to be worded somewhat differently and give them suggestions on how it to be worded, although that the contract of working for ASHRAE has responsibility for actually producing the user's manual as a publication. And so it's through that uh, give and take and through that review process that we what we try to make sure is that the user's manual uh, helps explain properly what certain provisions of the standard, how they're to be applied, and at the same time the, the uh, user's manual commentary does not, um, uh, uh, does not make changes to what the intent of the standard was or is. So if somebody wanted to get involved with uh, 90.1, how, how would they go about that? Um, I think one of the, well, there's a combination of things that they can do. Uh, one of the first things, of course, is we, we meet, we, we generally meet four times a year. Uh, two meetings that we have is each in conjunction with the summer and winter meetings of the, uh, of the ASHRAE organization as a whole, wherever their uh, summer or winter meetings are held. We are always having meetings there. And then in the interim, we will hold meetings uh, either in Atlanta or Chicago uh, where we'll actually have our same committee meetings just like we would at the annual winter and summer meetings, uh, but uh, obviously not in the same venue as, the, as, the, uh, as ASHRAE's full conference meetings are. Um, the, anybody who wants to attend the meetings is welcome to come to them. Um, our meeting um, 
times and locations are posted on the ASHRAE website once they're set. Uh, these meetings are open to anybody who wants to be there. They're, they're not limited in any way. Um, the, uh, we also have a listserv. You can go on the ASHRAE website under standards action, and, and uh, from there, there are listservs that can be signed up. Uh, we have a listserv for standard 90.1. People can sign up for that and receive notices of when we're going to have meetings uh, and various activities that we have going on. If a person uh, wants to um, be on the committee, of course, they can go to the ASHRAE uh, uh, website and uh, get a project committee application and submit it. Uh, now, just the fact that they submit an application doesn't automatically mean that they'll get placed on the committee, uh, but we, we do consider any and all interested parties. Um, and one of the things we do, and I'll say I'd have to do as a chair, is to make sure that I uh, uh, give con due consideration to applicants, but I also need to watch to main sure, make sure I maintain balance on my committee. In that in that term, in that way, I don't want to end up with a whole bunch of committee members representing one segment of of the uh, construction community. You know, like all designers, for example, or all equipment manufacturers. We have to have a balance of folks across the board, and so that sometimes has an impact on who can finally be um, approved for committee membership. But we uh, we encourage folks to uh, prior to applying for them to come to the committee meetings themselves and uh, start participating. Uh, attend the subcommittee meetings, uh, show an active interest because when they do that, then they obviously show that they're uh, they have an interest in a, in a, and are willing to commit the time. It is a it is a large uh, time commitment and um, and some resources uh, expenditures to travel to some of the meetings, uh, but we we definitely encourage folks to come. Great. Well, you know what I I appreciate that overview of ninety point one. Now. On a, on a different topic, I always like to talk, uh, ask people that I talk to um, if they have any lessons learned that they like to share with the listeners. So is there anything that, uh, that you've learned from your professional life, um, you know, whether it be in like management, construction, or what have you, um, that, that you'd like to share that said, you know what, I mean, this is something I learned that I'd like to, like to be able to pass on? Well, I appreciate that opportunity, and and uh, in in the, the variety of my time in my career, both as a code official and uh, and of course working for the Portland Cement Association, Portland Cement Association and Standards Development, I think one of the things that I have found is probably foremost is the fact that many times when we're interacting with each other, and it doesn't matter what meeting it is, whether it be a meeting with it internally in a company or whether it be a meeting between myself and other interested parties, I'll say like when I was a building official or whether I'm chair of Standard 90.1, that it's, a, you know, it's usually very important to realize that, uh, to be open-minded and listen to what other, others bring to the table or bring to the meeting. And because a lot of times by listening to others, it doesn't say you have to agree with them, but uh, usually through a through a, uh, an open-minded approach uh, and listening to other points of view, I think most folks, when they finish making decisions, will usually make what is the best and right decision after having uh, received that input. And so I find that to be very important. Um, the other thing I will say that I have found to be true is uh, the fact that um, – uh, there's more than one way to skin a cat, and that's that's the term I'll use. Um, I saw it as a code official, and I see it even involved with uh, standards development and, and codes development. That uh, we we will come up with things that we have in a standard or having a code, and and say this is how it ought to be uh, placed. In, let's just say a requirement in a building, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's the only way. That there are other options that usually are available. 
Um, and so folks always need to be, uh, should be receptive to that alternative approach uh, because uh, uh, I think in the end, for most folks that I know, if they're interested in, let's say, energy conservation, um, mo- most folks that are will try to do what's the best and right thing. And um, so, you, so that flexibility, I think, is uh, important of be- knowing there's more than one way to do it. All right. Well, I appreciate your time, Steve. And, uh, you know, I know that uh, it's been very informative for me, and hopefully uh, the, uh, the listeners have enjoyed it as well. So I appreciate your time. Okay, Matt, thank you very much, and I uh, appreciate the opportunity to be uh, to participate with you. All right, we're back. Thanks uh, again to Steve for uh, that great interview, spending some time with us uh, out of his busy schedule. Uh, we really appreciate that. Uh, also, I want to thank you, uh, the listeners. I, I really appreciate the uh, the support that I've been getting, and uh, I really appreciate each and every one of you uh, as valued listeners. I, uh, um, I'm really doing this for you, and hopefully that you're getting some benefit out of it. Uh, as always, uh, feel free to uh, send me any comments or show ideas. Uh, you can reach me through email uh, at matt at buildingx.co. Uh, Matt at buildingx.co. Also the blog there at uh, buildingx.co. If you want, you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, My Twitter handle is buildingx. And uh, if you're so inclined, uh, always, I'm uh, uh, very receptive to any feedback at iTunes. I would greatly appreciate that. So, until next time, thanks for listening. And remember, know what you build and share what you know. (laughs) 